Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, well, you know, we are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we have come to the middle of Canto 32 of Inferno. We're going to be at lines 40 through 69 in this episode. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can read along there. You can print it off. You can make notes. You can even drop comments, questions, disagreements. Oh, all of that is fabulous stuff to drop into my website, markscarborough.com, where you can find this English language translation. Let me just rehearse the plot for you. We have been let down with Pilgrim Dante and Guide Virgil onto the very center of hell, the floor of things. In fact, as we will discover more and more, the center of the earth. Yes, Dante knows the earth is a sphere. We'll talk much more about that in future episodes. And the very center of things is a frozen lake. It's a horrific, scary place with the damned frozen up to their necks, but their heads bent downward, and they seem to be wailing across the ice. Just about as nightmarish as you can get. Lines 40 through 69 of Canto 32 of Inferno. For a moment, I looked around on my own. Then I glanced down at my feet and saw two so scrunched tight that the hair on their heads was knotted together. Tell me, you guys whose chests are jammed together, I said. Who are you? These two craned back their necks so that when they'd raised their gaze to me, their eyes, until now only moistened along the rims, oozed tears down to their lips and froze there, locking their faces in an icy vice more tightly than board with board has ever been held in a clamp. They were then so overwhelmed with rage that they started to knock their foreheads together like two goats. And another guy, who lost both his ears to the freezing cold, with his face still held down, said, You think you can see yourself mirrored in us? If you want to know who these two are, the valley from which the Bocencio flows belong to their father, Alberto, and them, they came out of one body. You can look all over Caina and not find a shade more worthy of being encased in this aspect. Not the one whose chest and shadow were run through with one thrust from the hand of Arthur, nor Focaccia, nor the one here who shades me with his head and completely blocks my view. His name was Sassol Mascheroni. If you're a Tuscan, you know well enough who he was, and so that you won't force me to bang on any more, be apprised that I'm Camicione de Pazzi. I'm waiting for Carlino to clear my name. 
A bit of a long passage, jam-packed with figures. We want to unpack who those figures are and then end up at a place that perhaps you didn't think we would end up at a place way back earlier in comedy that is so thoroughly referenced inside this passage. It's complicated folding back onto comedy itself. Let's get to it. The opening line of the passage is, for a moment, I looked around on my own. And I just want to stop there at the opening line of the passage because there is this essential disorientation here. There's a couple things that are going on about disorientation in the ninth circle of hell. One, how do you get your bearings at the center? Think about standing at the center of a circle. Let's let's forget the sphere for a moment and just say a circle. Where exactly are your bearings at the center of a circle? Every way you turn is essentially more of same. Inside of a circle, the center is the most difficult point at which to get your bearings, more so even in a sphere. It also brings up the question disorientation, which is going to plague us in the ninth circle with focus. We've seen this before. I mean, like back at the shores of Akka, Remember when they're waiting for Karen's boat and the damned are lining up on the shore waiting to leap into Karen's boat and they seem to want to? Do you remember this? And the whole bit about how their desires have been so corrupted that they want their own damnation at this point and are jumping into Karen's boat. And right there, the pilgrim faints on the shore. There is a kind of disorientation on the shores of Acheron. But the matter of disorientation orientation seems more pressing in a world with no topographical markers other than human heads. I mean, if you think about this, there is no geographical marker here on this sheet of ice except these heads sticking up out of it, most of them looking down. As you see in this passage, two of them actually do look up. They can look up, but it seems like they're looking down. We'll talk about that in a second. There's more disorientation here. Back there at Acheron, there's more geographical detail. There's more geographical detail ahead in limbo and the grassy fields of limbo. I mean, again, the topography of hell is more differentiated. Here, the disorientation seems to be part and parcel of this larger problem of standing at the center of an ice sheet that makes up the center. Well, not only of the world, but of the universe itself. And let me say one more word about that before we pass on on this question of disorientation. Remember way back up with the schismatics, we found out that the pit was 22 miles around and the schismatics were hewn apart by the demon and then kept walking on and it was 22 miles around that they got healed and came back to that demon and then got hewn apart again. And then we went down one level to the falsifiers with Master Adam and Gianni Skiki and Sinan. And we found out that that was 11 miles around. 
if we take that differential as some kind of having problem, that the circles and subsets get smaller and smaller by halves, 22, then 11, if, I realize this is a huge if, then we're talking about here standing at a circle that is only five and a half miles around. Frankly, given that it is a flat ice sheet, you could see all of it. The horizon is farther off than five and a half miles on terrestrial flat land. So technically, you could see all of this expanse in front of you. It's murky. Um, This is part of the problem of why there's not a clear vision of the ice sheet. We're told it's worse fog than forms over the Danube when it freezes. But nonetheless, the space is tighter. It's got to be loud here. The damned are wailing, except for the murky air. You could see across to the other side, which is even more disorienting. Just a field of heads in ice. The next bit of the passage starts that the pilgrim glances down at his feet And there he sees two, as the passage says, so scrunched tight that their hair on their heads was knotted together. Tell me, you guys, he asked them, whose chests are jammed together? Who are you? These two craned back their necks, so their heads are bent down, but they clearly could move them when they want to. And now we find out why they don't move them. These two craned back their necks so that when they'd raised their gaze to me, their eyes, until now only moistened along the rims, that damned are crying in this ninth circle, oozed tears down to their lips and froze there, locking their faces in an icy vice more tightly than board with board has ever been held in a clamp. They were so overwhelmed with rage at being frozen together like this suddenly that they started to knock their foreheads together like two goats. We have to kind of infer this, but I think the implication is that they hold their heads down in the ice sheet, frozen up to their necks or even maybe a little bit higher. They hold their heads down so that their tears don't freeze in their eyes. If you hold your head down, your tears can flow down and not freeze and shut your eyes. By looking up at the pilgrim, suddenly their tears are now flowing down down their cheeks rather than just dripping onto the ice. And this then causes them to freeze together. The tears fall down their cheeks until it hits their lips and then they freeze. This is some infernal, twisted, nasty notion of a brotherly kiss, of brotherly affection. And we find out later in the passage that these are indeed two brothers. In fact, it says that they came out of one body, which means they're blood brothers. Some commentators take that to mean that they're twins. They came out, they exited one body. Others say, no, not twins, but just blood brothers, which makes their betrayal of each other all the more pressing. So either way, listen, either way, they're connected by blood. So these two brothers are here, and now suddenly they're fused together at their lips by their tears, which have instantly froze. (laughs) So 
wild, right? And they get enraged and they start banging their foreheads together. So their lips have to kind of still be stuck together by the frozen tears. But all they can do in their rage is beat their foreheads one against the other like two goats. Notice the bestial imagery going on here. Notice, too, the kind of nightmare scenario in which these two are held almost chest to chest, blood brothers. So like if, for example, someone in your family, very close to you, a sibling, one of your siblings, you suddenly betrayed that sibling, they betrayed you, you ended up offing each other, as we'll discover, And now forever you're locked kind of chest to chest in an ice sheet right up against each other so tight that your hair is actually entangled together. But you still want distance from this person. And once you look up to find out who is this talking to us, your tears lock your lips together because the water pours down, the tears pour down freezes and now you're just you're furious because here you are locked for eternity with your blood brother bitter enemy and now you've frozen at the lips together these two never speak in the passage some commentators think that that three line bit we had earlier remember where it says watch where you're walking that you don't tread on the heads of your brothers down here remember that bit some people think it's one of these two talking. Most don't. We talked about this in that episode of the podcast. One critic of of 700 years thinks it's Virgil who says it. No one else seems to agree with that. Most people think that the person who says, watch where you're walking, that you don't tread on the heads of brothers is this speaker who later comes up in this passage, this Camiciano de Pazzi. But we'll get to him when we unpack the characters. Let's pass on to the next three lines. And I want to say a couple things about the next three lines because they're super curious. Another guy who'd lost both his ears to the freezing cold with his face still held down. He's no fool. He's not going to turn his face up and thereby have his tears freeze against his skin. Said, you think you can see yourself mirrored in us. The first thing I want to say is this bit about lost both his ears. And you know I've banged on about this endlessly in this podcast about the physicality of the damned and how is this possible and how can shades lose ears? What is Dante trying to do? And he seems to sometimes embody the damned and other times they seem to be shades. They always seem to be able to feel pain and yet what are they if they're shades? Why does it seem as if he's stepping almost through the gluttons up with Chaco, it's all a large theological problem. But here may be the real crux. Dante is truly interested in the damned. He could well have passed over the damned. Dante doesn't need this poem comedy to spend this long in Inferno. We could have started with Purgatorio, some angel or some purgating soul could have said, oh, the damned, they're over there. Look down over there. There's all kinds of people down there suffering all 
all kinds of punishments. It could have just been a lake of fire and then gone on. The reason I say this is because once we reach Purgatorio and Paradiso, we will discover that the redeemed and the angels, to put it bluntly, don't give a damn about the damned. They don't even think about the damn. A couple times people will be mentioned, oh, we're going to have another mention of Guido Cavalcanti up in Purgatorio, and we'll have a couple references and cross-references, but in the end, nobody in Purgatory or in Paradise cares about the damned, and Dante doesn't need to either. But by pointing out the suffering, having ears frozen off to frostbite in this ice sheet, we see that Dante actually focuses on on the sufferings of the damned, something that causes problems in the poem. We end up sympathizing with some of the damned. Think Farinata, think Pierre de la Vagna, think Brunetto Latini. It's rather daring to set a third of your very Christian poem amongst the damned because it causes us all to feel as much sympathy as clearly the poet feels or at least to give the damned their humanity, which the poet does even here by having one of these treacherous types have his ears frostbitten off. He says, you think you can see yourself mirrored in us. And this is very strange phrasing in the medieval Florentine. Perché con tanto in noi ti specchi. Many translators blip over this line and essentially translate it as, what are you staring at? Or why do you stare at us so much? But the line is actually... Why do you keep on mirroring yourself in us? This person is claiming that the pilgrim is seeing the damned as mirrors. Let's stop and just think about that for a minute. Is this an accusation? In other words, is the sinner here saying, hey, Quit trying to find yourself in us. And Dante was certainly involved in the political intrigues of his own day as his political power grew in Florence. He, of course, himself was ultimately exiled, but not before he had done some pretty dastardly things, including exiling Guido Cavalcanti, the poet, perhaps to his own death. There is a way in which there's a complicity being stated here. Why do you continue to mirror yourself in us? Or is it hope? He hears the pilgrim ask a question of these two brothers who are locked together. And there could be a way in which what he's saying is quit trying to find your mirror here because you're clearly on your way farther down. This will come up later in the passage itself. Don't look at us as your mirrors. If you're standing there making your way down, then we're better than you are. Don't look at us for a mirror because you're clearly headed on down to the lower rings of the ninth circle itself. But there is another way in which perhaps Dante is finding a mirror here, and that has to do with those two brothers. They are locked chest to chest. They are embracing each other in a kind of twisted, 
kiss of brotherly love, and they remind us of the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux. What we eventually will know, it'll take us a while to know this, but what we'll eventually know is Gemini is Dante's astrological sign. Therefore, there is a way in which if there is a sly Castor and Pollux reference going on under this passage, then Dante has found a match for himself here. And there is an undertow of the poet confessing his own peace in the civil strife that has beset Central Italy. And we've already seen this back with Farinata. Go back to those episodes in this podcast with Farinata. There is a lot of discussion about working out the poet's guilt with Farinata in the 10th canto of Inferno. All right, let's take a look at the last long bit of this passage. And in these lines, these 15 lines, I believe it is, we will be able to unpack more about who actually is being referenced here. The passage goes, if you want to know who those two are, those two guys that have their hair tangled together and now their lips frozen to each other, the valley from which the Vicencio flows belong to their father Alberto and to them. Okay, that's the first reference, and we can identify them based on that reference. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, By the way, where the Vicencio flows, it flows down and out and about 10 miles west, a little south, but mostly west of Florence, it flows into the Arno. Well, Again, talk more about that in a second. They came out of one body. Twins, maybe. Blood brothers, definitely. The idea is they're born from one mother. You can look all over, and now he names the place. Caina will come back to this. And not find a shade more worthy of being cased in this aspic. Notice the food imagery. This jelly. It's the food imagery is so jarring in this bare, blank landscape of a frozen ice sheet with heads sticking out of it. Going on in the passage. Not the one whose chest and shadow were run through with one thrust from the hand of Arthur. We'll come back to that. Nor focaccia. Yes, like the sweet flat bread, the sweetened flat bread, but this is actually a nickname of someone. Nor this one here who shades me with his head and completely blocks my view on the pettiness. The pettiness is so brilliant. You're frozen in an ice sheet up to your neck. You've lost both your ears to frostbite, and yet you're saying, down in front, I, I can't see anything because this, this idiot here is blocking me. I just love the pettiness of it. It's the silliest thing to think about in this dire circumstance. I think we see Dante's humor in full blow here. It's easy to forget that so much of Inferno and Purgatorio too is involved with our poet's humor. But let's pass on. His name is Sassol Mascheroni. We'll come back to him. If you're a Tuscan, you know well enough who he was. And in fact, if you are a Tuscan of Dante's day, you do know who he is. We'll talk about that. And so that you won't force me to bang on anymore. Basically, he says, so that you won't force me to make any more long speeches. This guy is just done talking. 
be apprised that I'm Camicione de Pazzi. I'm waiting for Carlino to clear my name. Okay, there's a lot of references and a lot of people inside this passage. But before we get to unpacking who they are, let's talk about the name of this subset of the Ninth Circle, Caina. Caina is clearly a reference to Cain. Cain in the early part of Genesis who kills his brother Abel. They offer sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. Cain's is not. Cain kills his brother Abel. And then we have that famous passage, which I'm sure you know, in which God comes looking for Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain gives the very famous line, am I my brother's keeper? This circle that we're in has to do with people who have committed traitorous acts and they're all murderous acts against family members. And I think we should just stop for one moment. We have, I have, I won't blame you, I've done it. I have said, oh, the murderers are up amongst the violent, remember, standing in phlegathon up to their necks or chests or feet in the first rung of the seventh circle. Then I've said, oh, how can counterfeiters be below murderers? Well, the whole time I was saying that, I was thinking to myself, that is kind of the question you have to ask yourself at that moment of reading. But now that you've come down to the ninth circle of hell, now you realize that, in fact, there are murderers below us. And these are all homicidal maniacs who we are standing among. It's the difference between murdering for territory, murdering for pleasure, murdering for conquest, and here breaking very intense human bonds with murder, breaking familial bonds. It's not necessarily doing dastardly deeds to family members. That might be considered, in fact, part of fraud in some way. But this is a much more complex fraud, and it seems as if what these characters do to their family members is essentially kill them. So let's unpack who these characters are inside this passage, because this passage is just full up. Let's go back up to those two boys who are crammed together, smashed together at their chests. They are Alessandro and Napoleone dei Aberti. They are two boys, maybe, as I say, twins, maybe just blood brothers, but they are on opposite sides of the Italian strife. Alessandro is a Guelph, or as some people pronounce it, a Guelph. Alessandro inherits his family's estates where the Bicencio flows into the Arno. Napoleone, his brother, is a Ghibelline. They are both from this figure, Albert. They are Counts of Mangona, again, a little west and a little south, but mostly west of Florence. Alessandro inherited the castle from his father on the lands. His brother, Napoleone, killed him, and in a duel, they actually killed each other. Alessandro may have been mortally wounded. The historical record here is a little bit 
unclear. We can definitely pinpoint them as counts of Mongolna. Beyond that, the actual circumstances of their deaths have been fictionalized, have been filled in by commentators. We do know historically that Alessandro inherited the family lands and that his brother seems to have come after him. The second figure that comes up, I'm going to skip over who the speaker is for a moment, is this notion of somebody whose chest and shadow will run through with one thrust from the hand of Arthur. This is Modred, sometimes referenced as the son of King Arthur. Yes, King Arthur of the Round Table, and sometimes the nephew of King Arthur. He is, without a doubt, a traitor. And in the Mort Darter, the famed romance of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. In the Mort Darter, they actually both die in the traitorous situation that Modred sets up. But when Arthur runs his spear through Modred, what it says is that the hole he makes in Modred's body is so large that you could see the sun through it. And thus we have this notion of a traitor against his father or uncle, some family connection, depending on which romance you read, who has been run through the chest and the shadow. So if he were still standing after he run through, you would be able to notice that the shadow has a hole in it because the sun can shine through. That's the Modred bit. And then we just get a brief passing reference to Focaccia, which is a nickname for Vani dei Cancellieri. This person is, again, difficult to place in the historical record. Most of the early commentators say he killed his father. Now, in fact, in modern historical research, we think actually he killed his cousin. Dante may only know the story circulating around central Italy that he killed his father. In any event, he himself, this Vanni de Cancellieri, is blamed for the white-black strife as one of the key players that led to the white-black strife that tears Florence apart and ultimately sends our poet Dante into exile. So we get a reference to Modred. We get a reference to this nickname, Focaccia, who is this Vani character. And then blocking the speaker's view is Sassol Mascheroni. He's a Florentine who killed his cousin again over an inheritance. Notice how many of these traitors are acting for monetary reasons. They're killing their family members over inheritances. Gee, I don't know of any modern example of such a thing that could possibly reference today, could you? These fight over inheritances so much that they kill their family members. Uh, Sassol had a particularly gruesome death when he killed his cousin over the family inheritance. He was put in a barrel full of razor-sharp nails, sealed in it, rolled around Florence in this barrel of razor-sharp nails, and then Oh, God. And then beheaded. Here he is down here, another 
person who has been traitorous toward a family member. We're breaking essential bonds, family bonds, tight blood bonds. So let's talk about the speaker who's been speaking all along and who probably said those unattributed three lines don't tread on the head of these brothers down here in the last episode of this podcast. This is Camicione de Pazzi, as he identifies himself in the passage. He is mostly lost to history. The early commentators say he killed a kinsman again for inheritance or for land. He is mostly gone at this point from the historical record. Seems as if Dante is picking out a lot of local Tuscans who, in the middle of the civil strife of whites and blacks and Gelfs and Ghibellines, who in all of this civil strife that's going on, (laughs) take it upon themselves to murder their family members over land and inheritance. I mean, isn't it enough that there's a civil war going on? But it seems as if Dante is picking out people who even go further than the Civil War. I mean, they just increase further civil strife by fighting their own families, mostly here over money. And then we have this final figure in the passage where he says, I'm waiting for Carlino to clear my name. This is an interesting point. He's talking about Carlino de Pazzi. And Carlino de Pazzi is not uh, is a traitor who has killed a family member. Instead, Carlino de Pazzi held a castle for the white Guelphs during the Florentine and Tuscan strife between the whites and the blacks. And apparently, Carlino de Pazzi betrayed the whites by taking money for the castle and basically handing over this stronghold to the blacks that he had been charged with holding for the whites. Therefore, he is not traitorous against family members. He's traitorous against his country, against political alliances. We will discover that those people lie ahead of us in hell. So what Camicione is saying is I'm waiting for Carlino to get here because he's going to be farther down than I am. And we'll see that my sin isn't as bad as his. When he comes, it's not as if he's going to exonerate this figure who's speaking. But hey, you know what? I'm not as bad as it gets. When he gets here, you'll find out exactly how bad it can get. Interesting here that Carlino does not die until 1302. So when the journey is set in the year 1300, not when Dante's writing it, but when it's said, Carlino is not yet dead. And thus, this figure, Camicione, says, I'm waiting for Carlino. So he's predicting the future, and he knows where Carlino is headed, farther down. Remember, Farinata has told us this, that the damned can see the future. Go back to Canto 10. So at this moment in the journey's fiction of taking place in the year 1300, Carlino's betrayal and death is yet ahead of us, but Camicione sees it and knows that he's headed farther down into the pit. That's a lot to say about a very complicated passage full of lots of figures. Now, let's talk about two implications. 
This passage is obsessively local, with the exception of Modred. Everyone mentioned here uh, are involved in Dante's own world. They're Dante's neighbors, as it were. These murders, these traitorous acts happen mostly during Dante's lifetime and in the very locale where Dante lived. I mean, these brothers, for example, Alessandro and Napoleone, they they only live well, less than 10 miles from Florence. So this is an obsessively local list of people. Why? There could be several things here, and let's just talk through them, and I'm not going to come to any uh, firm answers about why it gets so obsessively local, but let's talk about it for a second. Is it that the pilgrim wants, in some way, to list off people close to home, that bonds of regional affection are working here with bonds of familial affection because of the, what do I want to say, the unbelievable number of intermarriages in Tuscany and central Italy at this moment. And so there's kind of a regional focus because this is the world Dante lived. Go back to Chaco with the gluttons way back in Canto Six. Remember Dante asks Chaco, where's Tagliaio? Where's Jacopo Rusticucci? Where's Mosca? He asks for these characters. Where's Farinata? And Chaco tells him they're much farther down in hell. They're far, far below me, a mere glutton. And we've passed them all at this point. We've seen them with the homosexuals. We've seen them with the heretics. We've seen Moscow with the schismatics. And so is there a way in which Dante is showing us the sheer shock that so much traitorous action, even against family members, is happening in my own backyard? Or is it that Dante himself was accused of traitorous acts. Now, he was ultimately exiled for baratry, for the selling of political offices and other things, which were probably trumped up charges, although it's hard to say. I know everyone wants Dante to be pure, but it's hard to say sometimes exactly how trumped up those charges of Dante's exile were. Dante himself has taken part in battles, in feuds. He's been on the White and Gulf battlefront before. We're going to see more of that in the next episode of this podcast. It's, it's interesting that Dante has been accused of these very things and perhaps even fighting against his own very family since he did marry a Donati. And many of the Donatis are on the other side of the political strife from Dante himself. So maybe there's a reason that this is so closely local to home because it's so close to the bone for Dante himself and what he could potentially be accused of politically. Or maybe this helps the pilgrim come to more visceral reactions. So now I'm not talking about the poet. I'm talking about the pilgrim Dante, the fictional walk here that's going across the known universe. We're going to find out, especially in the next passage, that the pilgrim is going to have extremely visceral reactions to this place in hell. For one thing, we're going to find out in the next passage that he's practically frozen to death. He's shivering because it's so cold. We've seen the pilgrim have 
visceral reactions before, before the gates of Dis, let's say. But here it seems like the pilgrims' actions are specifically called out and his reactions are specifically visceral and ultimately, as you'll see, specifically directed at the damned in this circle. So perhaps this close to home helps bring forward the visceral reactions from the pilgrim himself. In other words, the poet is setting up his fictional self to have a very strong reaction to these sinners. Several critics propose an alternate theory, and that is that as we're nearing the center of hell, things are narrowing to Tuscany and even further narrowing to Florence. I find this actually hard to take because of Modred. There's Modred sitting right in this passage, and there'll be others who don't necessarily take part here at the bottom of hell in the Tuscan strife itself. So it is going to become increasingly Tuscan, but I don't think that's the only thing going on here. You should know that several critics posit that for the rationale for why there are just so many figures, one after the other after the other, in this ninth circle, and so many of them seem so localized and now so obscure to history. But there is a figure who sits behind this passage And she is, well, can we say controlling it? Perhaps that's too big a word, but maybe controlling it. It's Francesca. Remember Francesca up in the circle of the lustful in Canto V? She is the first one to have named this place. She says at line 107 of Canto V that Caina awaits the one who killed her and Paolo, his brother and her lover. She named Caina all the way up there, this place in which the traitors against blood bonds and family bonds are found. But there's more than just her referencing this place. She is twinned with Paolo up there in the Lustful, exactly as Alessandro and Napoleone de Alberti are twinned here. There's a ringing reference with the way she and Paolo are bound together, and then these two bound here. She herself is damned for a kiss. Remember, they read the tale of Lancelot and Guinevere. They read about the kiss that Lancelot gives Guinevere, and then we read no further that day. A kiss damns her. Well, it's more than a kiss. They probably do a lot more than a kiss, but it's still a kiss that she attributes to her damnation. Here we have these two with their lips frozen together in an infernal kiss. She, too, predicts the future. She says that the person who murdered her and Paolo, Gianciotto Malatesta, her husband, will end up in Caina. And what happens at the end of this passage? 
our speaker predicts that Carlino will end up below him in hell. And notice both of them use that prediction to say, I'm not so bad. Basically, that's what Francesca says. You know, well, listen, I may be up here on the wind with my lover, Paolo, but the guy who murdered us, he's going to be way down in the bottom of hell. So, you know, I'm not so bad. It's the same thing this speaker says. Carlino's coming. He's going to exonerate me because he's going to be down farther toward the center of the pit with those who betray country and political alliances. This is not the last reference to Francesca in the Ninth Circle. There are all kinds of parallels going on in this passage already with her. There are going to become some stronger ones at the start of Canto 33. Francesca is sitting back here because her sin of incontinent lust, that is, I just can't control myself. I loved Paolo so much, and also I read the wrong sort of book with Paolo. I read a romance, and, uh, you know, Guinevere and Lancelot, that gave us kind of ideas as we read the book, and uh, it's not really our fault. We just fell into lust. Her vision of human affection is going to be contrasted here with people who just destroy the natural human affection we should have for each other, and particularly we should have in familial relationships. This was a long episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. There was a lot to cover here. So many obscure figures. I just kind of had to unpack that. Uh, I felt the need to do that. I, I actually considered cutting that out of this episode of the podcast. But I thought, hey, we might as well explore who all of these people are. So many packed here together. So tight in the text. Packed much like the heads must be on the ice. There may be a way that the poetry packed together is mirroring the landscape packed together. You know that probably at this point. The poetry is far more complicated than even this slow walk can make sense of. So, subscribe for more complications. <laughs> subscribe for more complications like this podcast. That would be great. Rate it and come back. Thanks for being on the walk with me. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate that you've made it all the way down here where we find really dastardly people who kill each other over, of all things, money. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.